Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we do turn over this time to you. We are here not just to see each other and sing songs, but to worship you, Lord, uh, to sit into your, in your presence, Lord, to be filled with the, your fullness of joy, Lord. So that's why we're here. We're here to worship. So, Lord, I pray that uh, you would speak to us this morning as we prepare our hearts to hear from you, uh, Lord, that you would speak into our very lives this morning, Lord, and change us where we need to be changed and, and convict us of the things that we need to be convicted of, Lord. Encourage us and challenge us, Lord, and thank you for the reminder that you do love us so much. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray, amen. Well, last Sunday we talked about the four Greek words for love. We have one, love. Maybe you heard it in the video. <laughs> love, love, love. But... In Greek, there are four words, and we talked about those last week. Phileo, which is like brotherly love. Philadelphia, that's a good reference. The city of brotherly love. Um, then you have storge, which is like phileo, brotherly love, but it's more like it's love between family members. Then you have eros, which is like that physical, intimate love between husband and wife. And then we talked about agape love. That's the divine, like unconditional, selfless love. That's the word that God uses when it says that he loved us. In John 3, 16 specifically, it says that he agape loved you. He loved you so selfless selflessly that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins and that you could spend eternity with him in heaven. Man, that's, um, that's an amazing kind of love, the kind of love that God has for us. Not because of anything that you have to offer him, but because of what he has to offer you. Redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. I reminded you last week that you are not forgiven by degree, meaning that you don't have to earn it or keep trying to earn it. Jesus literally said from the cross, his last words, I have the shirt on, to die. It is finished. Not his death, the defeat over sin. It is finished, he says, and it literally means paid in full. It is paid in full. You are not forgiven by degree. You're de forgiven by decree. He decreed it. It is finished. Whew, thank you, Lord. It's a gift. It's a gift that he holds out. I've paid for your sins. You're forgiven. Here is a gift. How do you receive that gift? How do you receive it? Well, Romans 10.9 answers the question. It says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you know why? It's a very interesting word that he uses there, saved. It doesn't say if you confess Jesus Christ with your mouth and believe that, the, that God raised him from the dead, you will be given a gift. 
He doesn't say you will have a happy life. He doesn't even say you in this verse, you'll receive eternal life. It says you'll be saved. It's very important that you know why he uses the word saved in there. Saved is an interesting word. It doesn't mean preserved, like stuck into a jar and put on a shelf to be used later. Saved, it's the word sozo in Greek, and it means rescued, delivered out of danger. That's the word he says, if you confess Jesus Christ with your mouth, and if you um, believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be rescued, delivered from danger. So I guess that begs the question is, delivered from what danger? Rescued from what the Bible also answers that question. It says, hell. What? <laughs> Hell's a real thing? It's a real place. Come on. Isn't it just kind of like a, a, a theory or like a, a concept? No, the Bible actually talks about hell as a real place. A real place that people who reject Jesus Christ are destined to go. And let me assure you that Hollywood does not want you to have an understanding of hell. It's not like what they, they will show you in a, in a movie that kind of laughs at or jokes about hell and it shows you, you know, hell is not that like all night party where the cool people go. That, that nightclub that's kind of dark and red and everyone's like, That would be hell, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's not that. They want you to think that it's, you know, oh, you know, like, you know, oh, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. You know that song? No. There's nothing light or good or happy about hell. Listen, this, let me just read you a couple of things that the Bible says about hell. It's a place of weeping. It's a place of wailing, of gnashing of teeth, of darkness. You know the word darkness isn't just like there's no lights on in the room. It's thick. It's visceral. You can feel it. It's surrounding. These are the words that describe darkness. Flames, burning, torment, everlasting punishment. These are the words that the Bible uses to describe hell. Jeez, what a downer. <laughs> This isn't why we came to church this morning. Where is the feel-good message, Pastor? This is it, actually. Do you not see? There is no greater feel-good message than that Jesus died for your sins. And you need only to confess Jesus and believe God to have eternal life. Doesn't get any more feel-good than that. In verse 25 of chapter 2, it says, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. And if this e eternal life that he's promised in heaven isn't enough, he says, I'm going to change your life here on earth as well. That's what John has been writing about, a changed life as a result of the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. You no longer will be in bondage to sin, wrapped up in its wretchedness but you will have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to resist sin. And 
If you do give in to the moments of weakness, you need only to confess Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And it says that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And you're no longer condemned. You don't have to walk around under the weight of condemnation of sin anymore. If you ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven. And there's more. Yes. (laughs) The more you become like Jesus the less you will sin. And, yes! When he calls you home to heaven, he completely releases you from that daily weight of temptation from sin. And so death is a gift in itself. The release of the weight that the temptation of sin has on your life every day. And then you're in paradise. Oh, man. Does that, is, that, is there any other feel-good message that even comes close to that? Could I stand up and be like, you're good people. <laughs> Go on out there and do good things. When you die, you're going to hell. Sorry about that. <laughs> that doesn't feel very good. John, <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a new microphone on. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> I could see it out of the corner of my eye. <clears throat> well, John's going to kind of continue on with this, this message of love and how much God loves you and what that causes to happen in your life and the change. So we're going to look in, and there's just like so much to talk about in chapter 3 that I'm super excited. So let's look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1, behold what manner of love the Father has. I'm just going to tell you right now, every time we use the word love going forward, it's the agape love, okay? So we're not talking about any of those other kinds of love. We're talking about the agape love of God, the selfless love. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God? When he says right here, behold what manner of love, in Greek what it says is, where does this come from? He's saying, behold, where does this love come from? Because we don't understand it. It's another word for, or you could say otherworldly. It's kind of saying, this is an otherworldly love. Where does it come from? It comes from another place that we don't understand. It's because agape love comes from God. It is not a a human construct, uh, something that we can even understand on our own because, gang, we don't love selflessly. We don't love unconditionally, but yet he's calling us to this type of love. How is it possible that we are able to love in a way that we don't know or understand, but yet we are called to do? How is it possible? In Romans 5, 5, Paul writes this. The love, agape, of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We can love the way God loves because he's poured the Holy Spirit into us along with that ability to agape love one another. That's what he's done. This otherworldly love, uh, those around us, those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, those who don't have the Holy Spirit, don't understand selfless love because they can't understand selfless love. They know only brotherly love. They know maybe storge love. Certainly seems like plenty of people have a handle on Eros love. 
but they can't understand agape love without the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you've given your life to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You have been given agape love and the ability to, it, to, to love in that way. It says, therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world looks at you and is, is, is astounded, confused by how you're able to love in such a way because they can't understand it. Imagine... It says that they don't know you because they did not know him. They don't know God, so they don't know you. They don't get you. Imagine, uh, you know, I go to another country, and I visit with some people. There. I meet some people who I've never met before, but I say, I'm from America. Now, in that moment, they may have uh, heard of America, they may have studied it in school. Maybe they've visited. They've seen it before. They've run into other Americans before. And so in that moment, because they know America, they do know a few things about me, or so they think. They know that, you know, uh, we like to call people, we're informal. We like to call people by their first names or even nicknames. They would know, because they know America, that um, I know, they know that when I say, how are you doing it's just a greeting. It's not really a question of how are you doing? <laughs> they know that we like our personal space, clearly. <laughs> We've got 50 people spread out in a room that holds 150. Good. We like our personal space. They know that we shower often and wear deodorant every single day because we're from America. I hope that's the case. If you bump into someone... No, sorry, I got ahead of myself. So they know that. But suppose I said that I was from a country that they'd never heard of before. Let's say I bumped into someone and I said, oh, I'm from Jeff Novia. <laughs> They've never heard of Jeff Novia. They don't know any of the customs, any of the cultures. They don't know anything about me. They don't know the country, Jeff Novia, so they don't know me. Now, if I bump into another Jeff Novian while I'm out, well, all of a sudden we have things in common. Oh, you're from Jeff Novia? I'm from Jeff Novia. We know, the, we know the anthem. We know the best restaurants together. <laughs> Do you know that Jeff Novia has a king, actually? Do you know what the king's name is? Jeff. It's Steve, actually. It's really weird. <laughs> it's a long story that I won't get into. But that's the idea. It's like, if I'm, fr I'm from God, they don't know God, so they don't know me. They don't know anything about me. That makes people very uneasy. We're going to see some of that as well. Beloved, in verse 2, now we are children of God. You know the word beloved is so important that you grasp a hold of this. Beloved just doesn't mean dear to me, as John writes earlier. It's not just that. Beloved is a word that is actually derived from the word agape. Beloved is derived from, so what it means is a person experiencing God's love. When he writes beloved, he says he's writing to those who have experienced God's love, agape love. So you have to keep reminding yourself that when John writes this letter, he's not just writing a letter and sending it out into the cosmos. He's writing it to believers. Those, he's saying, beloved, those who are experiencing God's love, now we are children 
of God. I stress that because of this. I've heard this before throughout my life where people say, well, aren't we all God's children? Have you heard that? Have you said it? Aren't we all God's children? The Bible's very specific. We are all God's creation. But God says, those who are my beloved, those who are in my presence, those who know me, those are my children. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you don't have a relationship with him or God at all, God says, you're not my child. I want you to be. I've made a way for you to be. But you are not a child of God. You are my creation, but you're not my child. The reason I say this and emphasize this is because if everyone is walking around thinking, well, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God, then the seriousness of their condition is completely washed away, and they will not come to that place of understanding that, oh my goodness, I need a Savior. Because my own self, my own works, whatever I have that I think is of value, is of no value to God. I need a Savior. He says, and it is not yet revealed what we shall be, But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Man, that is so cool. John is kind of saying, like, we don't know what we're going to be like when Jesus comes back. When he he comes or calls us home, we don't know what we're going to look like. Ah, there's a lot of speculation, and who really knows? Ah, Silver jumpsuits, shining white clothes, I don't know. I don't know if, you know, we're all going to look the same, we're all going to look different, if we're all going to look like our 30-year-old selves. If we're all going to, I don't know. The only clue that I could find is in Matthew on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus appears in his glory. And I believe that you know, got Peter, James, and John are standing there looking at this scene with human eyes. And you see Jesus on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration accompanied with Moses and Elijah. And it says that his face was shining like the sun and then his clothes became white like light. And I believe it was that moment that heaven kind of opens up so that they are stepping out of it and he is glorified. And it seems as though that we will be like him in that. And so maybe when we get to heaven, we're all going to have faces that shine like the sun and white shining clothes like light. And we won't be able to see each other because we'll be, we'll be just like, Denise, is that you? No, we'll have heavenly vision. Well, I I don't know, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. It'll be cool to see. But here's another really neat thing to think about. He says, because we are God's children, that we will become like Jesus when he's there. We will become, at least in appearance, like him. And we know that the process of sanctification is we become more and more like him every single day. That means that, you know, we are becoming as our God is. Right? David wrote a psalm, um, 115. I'm going to turn there. Feel free to join me if you'd like. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. 115. Psalm 115. You can just listen if you don't want to turn there. I'm almost there. Don't worry. Okay, this is what, this is what David writes. He says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Oh, no. He says in verse 2, Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? 
but our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have, no, they have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet, yet, feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throats. Those who make them are like them. So is every man who trusts in them. The thing is, and this is the concept, you will become like the God you worship. John says, because we worship the one true God, we will be like him. And David says, if you worship something else, you will become like that. If your God has eyes but cannot see, you will become like one who has eyes but can't see. David says that if you have an idol, a God that has ears but doesn't hear, you will become like that with ears that don't hear. If you worship something that's false, you become false. If you worship an idol who is empty, you will be empty. I don't want that. John says, because we worship the one true God, we will be like him. That's pretty cool. In verse 3, it says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What that is saying is those who have that hope of God, that, that presence of the Holy Spirit, tries to live a life that is pure. Try. That is our goal. We want to live a life that is pure to be pleasing to God. Do we do it all the time? No. Do we sometimes fail? Yes, but he's going to make a, di a distinction between those who try and fail and those who don't believe that they're failing in any way at all. Whoever commits sin, he says in verse 4, um, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Manifest means um, make known. Or it literally is the word uh, apparent. He becomes apparent, manifest. It means that Jesus came to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Well, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor know him. And remember, we, and, and this is kind of building on this understanding of sin as, as we've talked about, meaning that the idea is that this is like you occasionally give in to temptation. These words mean... Um, Continue to commit, that's literal, continue to commit. In, in the King James Version, it says committeth. There's a lot of THs in the King James. But they're important because they help us to understand committeth means keeps on committing. And not that you fail in the same way continually over again. It's you commit them without having any kind of remorse over the sin or not even recognizing it as sin. Later on, it's going to be called practicing sin. You practice sin. It's going to, it's going to juxta, 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 please. Thank you. The practicing righteousness and practicing lawlessness. He's saying that whoever practices sin, lives in a sinful state, does not know him. <clears throat> it's this idea of, of um, you know, as a believer in Jesus, uh, I'm not perfect. I think we've covered this. 
not perfect. Um, so sometimes I give in to the, te- the temptation of my flesh, whatever it happens to be, and, 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 I, and I know that it's wrong, but in that moment, the temptation to do it becomes stronger than my will to resist it, and I enter into that sin. But I'm telling you, the moment the sin is over, I have remorse for committing that sin, and that remorse that, and that presence of the Holy Spirit says that was sin, and I say, I need to confess that I can't stay in this place anymore. I can't stay in a sinful place. Uh, I made a mistake again, and I go back to the Lord, and I said, Lord, would you please forgive me? And, and, and I confess that that was sinful, and would you forgive me? And you know what he says? Yes. I, of course, I forgive you. And I said, even though I did it yesterday and the day before, and he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because it says that he remembers it no more when you confess a sin and he forgives you. It's like, Lord, even though I commit this same sin every time I'm in the car, <laughs> maybe that's just me. <clears throat> every, t- every day, Lord, I confess it every day. I can't believe I have to drag myself to, Lord, forgive me again. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I forgive you. <sighs> but I can't stay in a place of sin. I just can't do it. But there are those who can and who do. Here's the thing, and this is what he's talking about. That's the difference between me who commits sin and then asks for forgiveness and the person who abides in sin saying, what I'm doing, that's not sinful. You cannot abide in sin and abide in Christ at the same time. You can't do it. Let me give you an example. I can't abide, I can't live in my house and my neighbor's house at the same time. Can anybody do that? Can anyone live in their house and their neighbor's house at the same time? You can't do it. It's impossible, you can't do it. Now, occasionally, I can sneak over into my neighbor's house. But eventually, I'll say, oh man, I, need to, I shouldn't be here, I should get out of here. And I leave and go back to where I was, all right? That's the life of a believer. Sometimes you, you abide here. Sometimes you sneak over into your neighbor's house, but you don't abide there. But the person who lives and, and practices sin leaves this house and now abides in this house and says, it's perfectly fine for me to be here. Now, your neighbors may disagree, But you're saying it's perfectly fine for me to abide in this place. There's no reason for me to leave. It's fine. Isn't it fine? Everyone, it's fine. And God is saying, it's not fine. You are not to be there. And this is what he's talking about, the difference between those who who commit the act of sin and those who practice sin. The the act is I sneak over, I say, whoops, I I shouldn't be over here, and I repent and go back. And the person who says, this is where I live now because it's okay. I want it to be okay, and so it's okay. And God says, it's not okay. And there are so many, so many who believe that the lifestyle that they're choosing to live, they're turning an eye from what's right and saying, no, I want this to be good, and so it's good. And I'm going to live here now. And God says, then you don't know me. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Just as he is righteous, talking about Jesus. Do you remember why John is writing this letter in the first place? 
people are coming into the church, this early church, and they're saying, no, no, the physical realm is separate than the spiritual realm. So as long as you love God with your heart and your mind, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. And it's all okay. It's all okay because, you know, there's a separate separation. There's a divide between the spiritual and the physical. And John, I, you know, John just is like, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. In fact, the reason he says don't be deceived is because they're being deceived. And they're easily deceived because who doesn't want to think, you mean I could do anything I want physically and it has no uh, no connection to my relationship with God. I mean, I can act and do whatever I want. That sounds pretty good, except for when you do it, does it feel good? No. So we like to think that that thing is going to be fulfilling, whatever it is, you know, you know um, pulling up next to somebody in traffic and putting down your window and shouting at them because you think that's going to make you feel good. But, I, I, you know, this is what a friend told me. And it was... <laughs> But if you do that, and you, actually, here's one that's much more appropriate. Have you ever been on Facebook before? <laughs> it's just me. It's just me. You ever been on, and maybe you, put, you post something spiritual, you put on a Bible verse, you're like, this is going to be so good. And then, you know, you can't help but check it like 18 times the first hour that you put, how many likes did I get? Who said anything? And then somebody says something really like derogatory or mean. And you're like, oh, I'm going to get them. And the, 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 the temptation is like, oh, man, I, oh, you are in trouble now. Where's that verse that I, that one verse that I'm going to take out of context and, and send it right back at you. And let's say you do it. And then you, the whole time, I mean, do you feel completely at peace and calm from the rest of the day? Are you just like, there, that was perfect. That's it. No, the whole time you're just like, what are they going to say back to that? And then you're waiting, and then you check six more times. You're like, what? And then you're like, oh, and there's no peace. There's no peace. You're, you're anxious the whole time. This is why I don't do this anymore. <laughs> or ever, <laughs> maybe. <clears throat> I don't know how I got there. Let's just look on this. <laughs> he who sins is of the devil. Oh, there's a good place to start. Remember, we're talking about he who practices sin. He who says, what I'm doing is not sinful. I'm going to live in my neighbor's house now and say that it's right because that's what I want. Who who does that is of the devil. because The devil has sinned from the beginning. Has sinned, by the way. Do you see how that's worded? The devil, it's not that the devil sinned. Has sinned, meaning he keeps on continually sinning. That is what the devil does. By the way, John sees clearly that the devil is real, not a concept. Hell is real. The devil is real. They're not concepts. He says that he sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, does not practice sin, does not abide in sin. Understand the distinction. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot because he is born of God, cannot means is not prevented, but is unable to, 
unable. That means like when I sin, I am unable to stay in that place because the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not the condemnation, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit is so heavy that I'm like, Lord, I have to get back into fellowship with you. I am unable to stay in a place where I am out of fellowship. That's what this is talking about. Because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, made apparent. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So he's, again, practice righteousness or practice sin. Okay? Nobody does it perfectly here, but it's that, that trying to live this life that's pure, trying to... Um, uh, trying to live righteous, practice righteousness versus practicing sin. Those are the distinctions he's making. You're either doing this or you're doing this. There is no this in the middle. There's no middle. He says you're either doing this and you're a child of God or you're doing this and you're a child of the devil. Whew, that's serious, isn't it? But I want to tell you something. Even if you're here, even if this is where you live, even if this is where you live, you have been here your whole life, he says, you are one prayer away from being here. You are never too far gone to be forgiven by God, never too far gone to be forgiven by God. He says you need to confess with your mouth and believe in God, that he raised Jesus from the dead. You ask for forgiveness, and he says, you're forgiven. Now walk over here. Come out from the condemnation and the weight of your sin that you've been denying over here, and walk in the light over here. Do you know that you can do that? It's not ever too late until you breathe your last breath, until you breathe your last breath. You can live, uh, I'm going to go on. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you love one another. So he says, here's the, here's the, 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 the measure of a, of a true believer. He uh, walks in righteousness, not that they're perfectly righteous, but walks in righteousness and loves his brother. It's those two things. He's saying you're, you're going to love God and you're going to serve God. And so you're going to try to live a life that's pure and you're going to love your brother. When we talked about this, loving your brother, that means you're going to love them selflessly. That means that you're going to have to take your eyes off yourself and put them on the ones that are around you and say, how can I love that person as God loved me? How can I do that? Uh, and not how can I do it, but how, Lord, show me, show me how I can do it. And then he gives you this really great example. You're supposed to love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did, the mur why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So he says, you're supposed to love your brother. Not as Cain loved his brother. Cain loved his brother enough to murder him in a field. Don't do that. All right, that seems, you know, easy enough. But see, I, I just want to camp on this verse a little bit because there's some stuff here that's like amazing. So you know um, the story is that, you know, Adam and Eve, they had uh, two sons, Cain and Abel. And uh, you can read about this in Genesis chapter 4. 
Um, and so there comes a time when um, they are making, Cain and Abel are both making a sacrifice to the Lord. And it says that, that Cain was the tender of the earth and that uh, Abel was the one who kept the flocks, right? And when it came time to make this sacrifice, um, Abel brought the, uh, a lamb, from a firstborn lamb from the flock and sacrificed it to God. And God said that this was a righteous sacrifice and he accepted it. But Cain brought his and it says that he brought some fruit from the ground and he offered that to, to God and God did not accept that and said that it was not a righteous sacrifice. And that made Cain really unhappy. It made it, I'm going to read this to you, okay? It says, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of the flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. He was like this, What? So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not will do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now some people, I've heard this before, will look and say, it really wasn't fair, that God didn't accept Cain's offering. I mean, wasn't he the farmer? Isn't that what he had to offer? And, you know, Abel, he was the guy that kept the sheep, and so he had sheep to offer up. And, and um, no. See, here's the thing. You have to see, you have to understand, like what John and, and, and the Moses are saying in these two books is that the offering that Cain brought to God was not what God had asked them to bring. It was not acceptable. It doesn't even say here in Genesis that he brought the best of his harvest. It just said he brought some. I'll read it again. It said that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. It doesn't say the first of the harvest. It doesn't say the best. In fact, what he's saying is, God, here's what I have to offer you that I've done. Can't this be good enough? Can't my best be good enough to fulfill the required offering? And God says, no. In fact, what I can see in these two chapters here is that God said, the, the, uh, the acceptable sacrifice is the spilling of blood from an animal. That is what the acceptable sacrifice is. Cain said, instead of that, can't I just get by with what I have to offer you? Can't my best be good enough? And God said, no, your best can't be good enough. You need the spilled blood of an innocent sacrifice. Guess what? Same message today. Your best that you have to offer God is not acceptable to God. He says the only acceptable sacrifice was the spilt blood of an innocent lamb. That's Jesus. Many people even today are holding up to whoever they think God is and saying, can't my good works be good enough? And God says no. And their reaction is the same as Cain's. They're angry. God says, why are you angry? I told you what the, uh, what the sacrifice was, the official sacrifice, and you choose not to bring that. Your brother brought it. You can bring that also. So then it says that Cain, he's not happy. So he's going out to the field 
with his brother, and they're chit-chatting, and, and I kind of imagine the conversation something like this where, where Cain says, you know what, I can't believe that God won't accept my sacrifice. And Abel says, well, you know, we're supposed to bring a lamb that can be, it's blood that can be shed. That's what God said the sacrifice was. And, and Cain gets angry with his brother, and he kills him. It says he kills him in Genesis. Do you know what it says here in 1 John? The word in my Bible is murder, but do you know what the Greek word is? Slew. Maybe you have that in yours. He slew his brother. That word slew isn't just killed or murdered. It's very specific. It's the word that they would use when they would cut the throat of a sacrificial animal and let its blood out. So now we have an idea of how Cain actually killed his brother. He didn't take up a rock and hit him over the head. He slew him. He took a knife and he cut his brother's throat as if he were a sacrificial animal and spilled his blood on the ground. Almost as if he was shaking his fist at God and saying, you want spilled blood? I'll give you spilled blood. Cain killed his brother to shut up his witness that the will of God could be obeyed even in a fallen world. Man. The very next verse, he says, don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We're able. We're coming to the world with the message of God made uh, the acceptable sacrifice for your sin was the spilt blood of the lamb. And the world says, no, God accepts me by my own merit and the works of my own hands and what I have to offer. And we say, I'm sorry, but he doesn't. And so they say, all right, quick. And they're going to hate you. And he says, don't be surprised. Do not marvel. Do not marvel means stop being surprised when the world hates you because you're coming to them and saying, look, you are nice and I like you and you have good hair, but God does not accept any of those things for eternal eternity. You need Jesus. The reason I think that people get upset with us when we bring that message is because it seems like we're saying, ha ha, I have something you don't got. But that's not, I'm not taking any pride in the fact that I'm going to heaven and you're not going to heaven. I don't take any pride in that. My heart breaks for you if you've not accepted Jesus because I know what the Bible says about hell and I don't want anyone to go there. And so I will bring you the truth even though I know that when you bring the truth to some people and maybe their family, that they're not going to like it. But do you love them enough to risk it? Do you love them enough to tell them the truth? Knowing that they may hate you in the process. Verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brother, and he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Again, Jesus will say in another gospel, no greater love is this than that a friend lay down his life for a friend. And so what he says is, do you love your brothers enough to say that I would lay down my life for you? That's selfless love. John knows, though, 
even then, that most people would not be called to lay down their physical life for the sake of the brother. Maybe more so then than right now. But he knows that it's, some people would be like, sure, I would lay down my life. Because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I'm probably never going to have to do that. I'm probably never going to have to say, no, don't kill them, kill me. So he goes on. John, a clever man. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Okay, so now he's going to say, all right, all right, now everyday life. How about that? He who has this world's goods. This is basically talking about um, you who have any kind of worldly wealth. Do you know what worldly wealth is? You have food, you have shelter, you have clothes. Beyond that, it's, it's, and, and, and it's anything beyond that as well, but food, shelter, clothes. Anyone who has food, shelter, and clothes, who sees his brother, this isn't just like um, a passing gaze. Oh, oh, ah, that's my brother over there. Look, you know, he looks hungry. No, this is a word that means gaze on for the purpose of analyzing. It means this is someone who you see on a regular basis. But it's important that he says this because what does it mean? You have to actually take your eyes off of your own self and your own situation in order to see the people around you. And are you so wrapped up in your own life that you aren't able to see any of the needs of the people around you at all. Picture this. It's like, it's like the enemy has come up right behind you and has done this. So all you see is what's right in front of you. Now, unless I, you know, now I can see David now. But, you know, has he taken away, are you taking away the blinders and looking around and seeing whoever is in need? It says that who sees his brother and shuts up his heart. That, in Greek, you know what it says? Locks up his intestines. That's like, you see someone in need, you know they have need. Day after day, you see them. Every week, you see them, and you're just like, I'm locking up my intestines. It's, it's this, this like, no, I, it's a resisting of the urging of the Holy Spirit. It's like, no. No, it's fine. Somebody else will do it. Oh, man. You know, I used to be in fundraising, uh, nonprofit fundraising, and I learned that if you do a presentation to a room like this and you talk about a need and you show pictures and, and you graphs and numbers and charts in a room like this, you all may be sitting there going, I, you know what? That is a really good project that they're working on. I'm sure somebody here is going to help them. Not me. But this room is full of people. I'm sure somebody, but if you talk to one couple at a time, got them. There's no one else to turn to. They're like, well, I guess we have to do it. If you're sitting in this room and you're thinking, well, I really want to help, but there's a lot of people in here and they're probably going to help and I don't have to do anything, then you're not seeing and you're not unlocking your intestines. Unlock your intestines. And let's just stick with heart. Let's just say, uh, open up your heart. There's only four bathrooms here. <laughs> but John asks a question. As you're not willing to help your brother, how is the love of God abiding in you? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Do you see what this saying is? Like, love is demonstrated through action. 
And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things which are pleasing in his sight. All right. First of all, what this is saying is that God is greater than the condemnation of your heart. God is bigger. God is able to forgive no matter what it is. He is greater than the condemnation of our heart. He can forgive you. But what this is also saying is, and because sometimes 22, verse 22 gets kind of taken out and it's like, oh, we're just going to use this verse and forget about everything. God will give me whatever I ask for. What he's really saying in this section right here is if, if you are obedient to do what God has called you to do, you will have confidence in your own prayer when you go to God. But if you don't do what you know God has called you to do, you will have no confidence in your own prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't answer if you go to him in prayer. It means that you likely won't go because you'll be thinking, how will God help me when he knows that I haven't helped the person he called me to do? And that's what this is talking about. Let me give you a practical example. Let's say that somebody gave me a whole bunch of lumber and nails and cables and told me to build a bridge across this river, across the Gordon River. And I look at all that material and I say, you know what? I'm only going to use one nail instead of five in each joint. And I don't need all these cables. I'm just going to use two. And then I'm going to use some of the wood, but not all the wood. I'm going to keep it all back. And then I finish this shoddy looking bridge. And then I have to go across that bridge to get to the other side of the river. How much confidence do I have in that bridge that I'm going to get across? Very little. But let's say I take everything that I was given and build a bridge with every nail and every cable and every board, and now it comes time to cross that bridge. How much confidence do I have? All confidence to go across that bridge, because I was faithful to use everything that I was given in order to accomplish that. He's saying, if you use what I've given you to help others, you, have, you should have all confidence when it comes time to pray. But if you don't, it's no wonder that you don't have confidence because you know that you did not use what I gave you to use. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps this covenant abides in him, remains in him, lives there, and he in him. That's the thing. As we read through, listen, I, I don't know where this note came from the other day, but I found it. On a, a, I must have written it and stuck it in my Bible. It says that as we read through the word, as we go through the word, the word goes through us. As we abide with Jesus, Jesus abides with us. That's what he was saying here. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Whew, man. What a crazy chapter. Let's pray. Lord God, I do just thank you so much for this morning and for this chapter that you've given to us in 1 John. Lord, I pray uh, that as we try to live a life that's pure as you have called us to be, a life of holiness. Lord, I pray that we would um, take hold of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to overcome the temptation to sin as you've given it to us. 
for that purpose. But Lord, I thank you for those moments when we give into that temptation and we do sin. Lord, that you uh, are faithful to forgive us when we confess our sins. Lord, I pray for anyone that's here today that maybe is uh, abiding in sin, practicing in sin, rejecting the very sin that Jesus went to the cross for. Lord, that you would bring them to a place of unsettled peace, Lord, of rock bottom, that they might come and turn to you, as we see in the story of the prodigal son, that he would come back to his father and the father would welcome him in. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.